0: So we're at the start of Advent yet again. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been looking online at all sorts of things you can get involved with this year um, for Advent. Um, there's, I'm never quite sure how to say this, so Leanne can put me right, because I know you're quite involved with it. Alternativity, is that the right way to say it? So alternativity is a focus on simplifying, and there's been some fantastic selfies on Twitter and Facebook. People saying, I'm doing this to simplify my Christmas, so... I think that's hashtag alternativity to find that one, is it? Or is it hashtag simplify? Hashtag simply Christmas. I can't keep up with all of these. Um, there's a whole group of Baptists doing a Twitter advent, um, hashtag advent waiting. Um, I put one up this morning, but there's some far more uh, holy ones than mine. Mine was a bit of a silly ditty. Um, a lot of people have been taking chocolate advent candle calendars to food bank. Collections. Now, I know food banks are very contentious. We're not saying they're right, um, but it's an opportunity if you think it's something you'd like to do in the next few days, just take a chocolate advent calendar, um, which can then be passed on to somebody. Not endorsing food banks, but if they exist, let's at least try and make them work in some way a little bit better for some people. Um, And just, I mean, one that I'm doing, um, you might be interested, you might not. I'm doing the Amazon free advent you pledge not to use Amazon for 25 days in December. Um, Yeah, I know, it's a good challenge, that one. I spend a fortune on Amazon. But Amazon are um, not very good at paying their taxes. Amazon don't pay their staff very well. And the reason we can order something at 10 o'clock at night and get it at 10 o'clock the next morning is because there are people working night shifts on not good conditions. So just a few things to think about for Advent. But this idea of simplifying, I think, is a really good one for all of us to take into account. So, after all that, uh, a call to worship which is adapted from a traditional liturgy. God of Abraham, lead us to your kingdom. God of Sarah, lead us to your kingdom. Through our laughter and labour, lead us. God of Zachariah lead us to your kingdom in our dumbstruck disbelief lead us God of Elizabeth lead us to your kingdom from our emptiness and marginalization lead us God of the patriarchs God of the matriarchs lead us to your kingdom Give us new hope as we journey together to harmony, wholeness, and freedom. Let's pray to God together. O come, Emmanuel, the heart cry of the ancients, living under the shadow of oppression, (coughs) exile, or occupation, is taken up by our voices as we enter once more the season of Advent, of anticipating and imagining the coming of God to be with us. Oh! The single letter, the single sound that carries with its expression both the sigh of yearning. Oh! The arrival of Christ and a gasp of wonder, oh, of the divine. Come, an invitation, an instruction, a please, a desire for another to share the present in all its complexity. Emmanuel, God with us, God with us, God with us, God with us, a name, a statement, a promise, an aspiration. O come, Emmanuel, come to us just as we are, some awestruck, others angst-ridden, some pleading, some demanding, some tentatively inviting. Come to us and make your home within our hearts again, filling us with joy, Peace, hope, and love. Come, for we pray it in the name of Jesus, who showed us a pattern for prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. And we forgive those who trust against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever
1: and ever. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, "'while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent "'in the heat of the day. "'Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. "'When he saw them, "'he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them "'and bowed low to the ground. "'He said, "'If I have found favour in your eyes, my lord, "'do not pass your servant by. "'Let a little water be brought, "'and then you may all wash your feet "'and rest under this tree. "'Let me get you something to eat.' so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abram hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seafs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice, tender calf, and gave it to a servant, who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared, and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Now we come to the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, from verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time.
0: For me, Advent is one of my favourite seasons in the Christian year. Traditionally, it's focused on what is called the eschaton, the return of Christ in glory at the end of time and the great consummation culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. It was a penitential season, during which time the faithful would fast, or at least abstain from rich foods, as they prepared themselves spiritually, reflecting on their inherently sinful nature, their continual need for repentance and for forgiveness. And somewhere along the line, this emphasis on self-examination has given way to a different emphasis, Rather looking forward to the end of time, an increasingly backward focus to events 2,000 years ago and the incarnation of Christ in a baby boy called Yeshua, or Joshua, or Jesus if you want to say it in Greek. God entering the brokenness and temporality of human experience in a way that completely defies expectation. And, of course, they're both valid ways to look, because whichever way we face, whether we're looking forwards or looking backwards over the week of Advent, to what's in the northern hemisphere is the great midwinter festival that the church appropriated from the indigenous religions, we're moving towards the mass of Christ, the celebration of the incarnation with an anticipation of the consummation. That's a lot of big words, but I'm just showing off because I can now, like a lot of churches, we won't travel the whole Advent journey in reflective mode. I don't know about you, but I'm really always excited at the prospect of the Sunday school-led nativity. It allows me to release my inner child and to go back to that little six-year-old who heard, first heard that story that changed my life for good. If only for a few minutes, we like to do that. And of course, who doesn't like the prospect of a really good sing? At a carol service in the evening or in the morning or whatever it might be so with all of that this kind of penitential rather sober rather heavy mood and the fact that we kind of have lots of celebrations that are really important and valuable the preacher has a good challenge every year with advent what can i say this year that i didn't say last year and the year before and the year before that i actually wondered this year whether that mattered but It's one of the questions I ask myself. What little nugget of hope can be offered to somebody who's feeling a little bit hopeless? What glimpse of love to be offered to somebody who feels unloved or unlovely? What hint of peace to somebody whose mind or life is in turmoil? What modicum of faith to somebody who feels overwhelmed by doubt? This year, I've decided to take the first two Sundays of a fairly traditional Advent preaching scheme, and then just tweak them a bit, slightly subversing it in the hope of finding something that might speak to us a little bit. So this week, uh, traditionally the Sunday when we look at the matriarchs, sorry, the patriarchs, get it right, patriarchs, I'm adding in some matriarchs. <coughs> Next week, we're going to look at prophets, the traditional theme, and prophetesses. And each week some stories will be brought into some kind of dialogue as we reflect on the God who continually defies our expectations. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are traditionally identified as the patriarchs of Israel, the men with whom God covenanted and through whom the nation of Israel came into being. They are the heroes of faith revered to this day, There aren't any equivalent New Testament characters. I did a bit of searching this week because I thought, oh, I wonder who the New Testament patriarchs are. Apparently there aren't any. And yet, surely, surely there must be some kind of continuity, some people whose stories actually speak to us as they are our forebears in faith, those who came before us on the journey. The story of Abraham and Sarah... And the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, as we hear them in these short extracts this morning, are strikingly similar. In each case, we meet a couple who are commended for their righteousness, devout in their faith and practice, and yet, when measured against the societal norms of their day, are failures. Because in each case, they are elderly and they're childless. they failed. They haven't done what they should do. Each of the stories is a mysterious one. There are clearly some supernatural elements to the stories. And each of the stories actually is totally human, characterised by incredulity and disbelief. I think that's the same thing, really. Traditionally, we hear these stories with the men as the main characters story of Abraham the story of Zechariah but what if we allowed ourselves a little bit of licence and imagine how they might have been told by Sarah and Elizabeth so let's hear Sarah's story <gasps> laughing boy that's what i call him this son of mine isaac he laughs and he does always seeing the funny side of things, chuckling away to himself at some private joke, stifling the giggles when he knows he ought to be serious in worship, but he can't quite do it. And he makes me laugh too, real belly laughs, laughing till the tears roll down my cheeks, laughing so much that, well, I cross my legs and you kind of get where I'm going. And he makes the neighbours laugh too, He's brought so much happiness, so much lightness of spirit to our lives. But it hasn't always been like this. Abram and I had lived a quiet life together for decades, enjoying each other's company and each other's bodies, hoping and praying that one day a child would be born. And month by month being disappointed when it became clear it would not be so. We grew older, and our relationship became almost that of brother and sister. In fact, there was a time later on when he would pretend I was his sister in order to protect himself from some men in Egypt. But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit there. One day, he announced that God had told him we must go off on a journey. He didn't know where, because God hadn't told him. But it was somewhere that God would reveal in due course, and off we went. And it was an adventure, that's for sure. Thank goodness we didn't have children to take care of. It was hard. It was physically hard. It was emotionally hard. It was spiritually hard. And not least when Abram kept, Abraham kept saying over and over, well, God has promised me so many depend- descendants, you won't be able to count them. just could not see how that could be. By now, I had an Egyptian maid called Hagar, and in a moment of utter stupidity, I gave her to Abram to be his concubine. When she conceived straight away, I was shocked by the intense hatred I felt for her and her child. I couldn't stand the sight of them. And to my shame, I treated them so cruelly that she fled with the child in the desert to die. Only by the grace of God did they survive. But damage was done that I can't undo. (laughs) It was only later, after he began to call himself Abraham, that he told me about the time he fell flat on his face, laughing at what God had said to him. And yes, I do mean him, not me. That was later. God had just reeled off a long speech about the covenant promise and the nation and all that stuff, ending up by saying, "And Sarai will be called Sarah and she will bear a son. Flat on his face, laughing into the dust, Abraham said to himself, can a child be born to a man a hundred years old? Can Sarah at 90 bear a child? Ridiculous. Great joke, Dodds, but... Frankly, wouldn't it be better just to make Ishmael my heir? We'll skip over the mass circumcisions that came next. But we were in our tents one day when three strangers arrived at the hottest part of the day. Abraham invited them to sit under a tree and I was sent off to bake bread whilst one of the servants had to slaughter and cook a fine calf. That took a fair few hours, but when it was all ready, the four of them partook of the food, and the sound of conversation drifted over to where I was, just behind the flap of the tent. I couldn't believe my ears. One of the men announced that when they came back, I'd have a son. I laughed out loud, at my age, I don't think so. We hadn't even, didn't even, well, you know, any more. And anyway, even if we did, I was too old. And then I realised that I had been heard. I was so ashamed. I tried to deny it. They had heard me and I was chastised. Chastised, it appears, by God. Abraham had laughed with incredulity and disbelief when told that I'd have a son, but nobody has ever thought the less of him for it. Instead, they recall him as a man in whom faith and actions were perfectly matched. It is I, the wife and childbearer, recalled as the faithless one, because I laughed at the improbability of it all. But here's the mystery. God didn't punish either of us for not having enough faith, and God didn't punish us for laughing in the face of God. In fact, to our amazement, we did get it together and we did conceive a child. And he changed our incredulous laughter into that of joy. Our laughing boy, our Isaac, our miracle baby. And then what about Elizabeth? God has been gracious to me, to us. God has been gracious. The meaning attributed to the name John, my wonderful, wild, outspoken, scruffy bear of a boy. Not quite the son I imagined being of the priestly caste, I'd always imagined raising another quiet, obedient cohen. But how can I not delight in motherhood? How can I not enjoy the acceptance, albeit somewhat grudgingly, among the other priest's wives? And how can I not enjoy the possibility that one day I will see my son fulfil his potential? Zachariah's a good man. That's what my parents told me when we were married. A good man who will take good care of you. And he is, and he does. He's devout, careful, gentle and hard-working. At the time when it all happened, we'd been together for so many years that life had become entirely safe and predictable. In the early years was the excitement of lovemaking... ...eagerly anticipating the arrival of a child of our own. And each time we were disappointed. And as the years stretched out... ...the knowing looks from the neighbours became more and more hurtful. In the privacy of our home... ...we reminded each other of Sarah and Abraham... ...our forebears who remained childless until they were very, very old. We knew our childlessness was not a sign of God's displeasure, that we had not committed some unforgivable sin, and sometimes we even dared to hope that we might still have a baby late in life. But there were many times when it was really hard to keep ourselves from bitterness, envy or anger. The way the priesthood works is complicated, to say the least. Each section takes a turn to serve in the temple. And they draw lots to see who will be chosen to go into the Holy of Holies to offer the incense to God. We were so excited when Zechariah's name was finally chosen, vindicated in some way that despite our childlessness, this was still possible. We were thrilled because it was such an honour. And, if we're honest, not just a little bit scared. It would be months, well, around nine of them, before I would find out what happened that day. My loyal husband and devout priest came home literally dumbstruck, unable to speak a single word. Perhaps it's good that some sort of telepathy exists between couples of a certain age. He did seem somehow more youthful and more energised, and in fact, so did I. And then, when it seemed too ridiculous for words, it happened. My belly began to swell. And then there was the first kick. The gobsmacked faces of the neighbours, they were a sight to behold all Zachariah could do was smile or nod and if he wanted to say something more he had to motion to us for a slate to write it down. Finally, after all my years of waiting all the snide remarks and sideways glances I held him in my arms my son my son a week later, we took him to the temple for naming and circumcision. And everyone was saying, well, obviously, you, you'll name him for his father, won't you? And looking at me as if I had quite lost my mind when I said, no, his name is to be John. My word wasn't good enough. It had to be the father who decided. So Zechariah painstakingly spelled it out it for him. His name is J O H N John. At which moment he found his voice again. And he laughed and he smiled and he sang it over and over again. His name is John. God is gracious. God is gracious. He's one on our own, is our John. <laughs> There's no way he'll follow the crowd. Questions everything. He won't drink wine, he won't eat anything other than the most basic food. He grows his hair long, and he dresses outlandishly. But I love him. We thought it would never happen, Zachariah and I. We began to wonder, had we actually offended God so much that we were denied an heir? Outwardly, of course, we were models of religious orthodoxy. And we were devout, we never quite stopped believing in the God who is gracious. But we weren't just so sure where we fitted with all of that. Just like our forebears who dared to be real with God in their incredulous laughter, we have learnt that it's okay to doubt, it's acceptable to question, it is permitted to lament. And even if God won't always answer us in the ways we would like, God will never abandon us in despair. Abraham and Sarah. Elizabeth and Zachariah. So what of us? How do these stories of our forebears speak to us? Is there anything in their experience that resonates with our own experience? Perhaps giving us the legitimacy of our questions. That's okay. Are there aspects of their story that actually just reinforce our own disappointments that perhaps make us a little more sad? even though, like them, we resolutely hang on in there? Dare we laugh in the face of God, knowing that we will not be rejected? Are we willing to be dumbstruck by the wonder of a God who may yet surprise us? The biblical patriarchs weren't perfect people they struggled and they failed every bit as much if not more than we do and yet God continued to love them forgive them and yes to bless them if we don't hear anything else this Advent time let's just remember this that God loves us right now, just as we are. That God can take whatever it is that we need to express, whatever it is. And that God will never love us any less or any more than we are loved now.
2: Amen. We come before God and offer our intercessory prayers. Let us pray. Our God and our Savior, we come before you now in hope, as you came to those in the past with hope. The news you brought was not always easy to comprehend. And sometimes it was not easy to believe. Help us to understand the hope you hold out to us. And help us in our unbelief to believe in the impossible. We bring before you a world that yearns for hope on every level. And we, your believers, share in that yearning as we see a world around us in so desperate need. We think of those caught up in the Ebola crisis and pray that you will continue to bring hope through nations with advanced medical supplies to the areas in Western Africa where the disease has taken its greatest toll and where it continues to spread. We particularly pray for those volunteers who put themselves in the disease's way, at great risk to themselves. Protect them, O Lord, as they hold out hope to those falling ill and to those dying. We think of those caught up in war-torn regions of the world, whether Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and countless other places throughout our globe. And we think of all those displaced by the bombs, the incursions, the bloodshed. We pray for all refugees who are without home, struggling with temporary shelter or with no shelter at all. We ask, O Lord, that somehow, in some way, they might find hope in a situation so seemingly lost. May the hope of returning home one day be a real hope, a hope based on the cessation of war and the laying down of arms. We think of those closer to home, caught up in various situations of hopelessness, we pay for those here in our city, here in our very neighborhood, who have no permanent shelter, the homeless, and we pray for those who find for whom food remains a daily worry, those who every day struggle to house themselves against the encroaching winter or to feed themselves with sustenance. To find the dignity of living a life that is not continuously bereft of basic necessities. May you hold out hope to them through the generosity of others. Through those who have in abundance. And that we know includes most of us here today. Teach us, O Lord, to be hope for the hopeless. As we think back to the hope you held out in the promise of a little child, against all odds, against even the possible, we pray that the wondrous fulfillment of that hope may now infuse all our living, all our world, to inspire us to work for and rejoice in the good to come. And to claim those great words, each one of us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Amen.
0: God of Abraham, lead us to your kingdom, into fruitfulness, lead us. God of Sarah, lead us to your kingdom. Through our laughter and labour, lead us. God of Zechariah, lead us to your kingdom. In our dumbstruck disbelief, lead us. God of Elizabeth, lead us to your kingdom. From our emptiness and marginalisation, lead us. God of the patriarchs, God of the matriarchs, lead us to your kingdom. Give us new hope as we journey together to harmony, wholeness and freedom.